You're listening to Transfer Orbit, an occasional podcast from the Reading List newsletter about science fiction, writing, and the future of reading. I'm Andrew Liptak. My guest today is puppeteer and author Mary Robinette Kowal. She's best known for her Regency-set glamorous history series, World War I fantasy Ghost Talkers, and alternate history Lady Astronauts series. In 2008, she earned the astounding award for Best New Writer, and her first Lady Astronaut novel, The Calculating Stars, earned the Hugo, Locus, Nebula, and Sideways Awards in 2019. It was also a finalist for the Campbell Memorial and Dragon Awards. Kowal introduced readers to her series lead character Elma York in 2012 with her audio novelette The Lady Astronaut of Mars, set in an alternate timeline in which an asteroid lands off the coast of Washington in DC and kicks off a climate warming event that threatens humanity's existence. In The Calculating Stars, Kowal follows Elma as a coalition of nations, the International Aerospace Coalition, form a plan to stand up a space program to begin colonizing the moon and Mars as a way to prevent humanity from going extinct. Elma, a former woman Air Force service pilot, wants to join the initiative but is told she can't. Working with other female pilots, she helps push the IAC to not only accept women as astronaut candidates, but to launch them into space alongside their male counterparts. In the second installment of the series, The Faded Sky, Elma, now an experienced astronaut, is assigned to the first mission to Mars, along with an international contingent of fellow astronauts. As the mission proceeds, she faces skeptical colleagues who don't believe that women should go into space, technical problems, and her own issues with anxiety. The next installment of the series, The Relentless Moon, shifts perspectives to follow another astronaut in the IAC, Nicole Wargan, who is part of the same astronaut class as Elma. While Elma is rocketing off to Mars, Nicole is assigned to a mission to the growing lunar colony amidst growing unrest on Earth and her husband's presidential campaign. Another installment of the series, The Martian Contingency, is expected to be published in 2022. Mary Robinette, welcome to Transfer Orbit. I wanted to start off by looking at your body of work so far. You've published novels set in the Regency era, World War I, and now the 1950s and 60s during the space race. Uh, what appeal does the past hold for you? One of the things that I like about working in something that is a historical genre is that it allows us to look at patterns that tend to repeat themselves uh, in our society and history. And that then allows the reader to draw parallels with the modern world and, and their own situations uh, without getting becoming like a polemic. So for me, it's it's many of the same reasons that I like science fiction and fantasy in general is that it allows us to kind of examine some of that connective tissue a little bit more thoroughly, I think. What is a really good example for you inspiration wise? Is there any particular moment in history that sort of grabbed you by the, the shoulders and said, I need you to write about this? Um, <laughs> it's not so much that way. I mean, occasionally it is, I guess. Like I, I really wanted uh, Jane Austen with magic when I did my first series. Um, and and the space program, like I, I just have always been fascinated with space. Um, but often it's there's a, a moment where a historical period and something that I am thinking about deeply uh, intersect. And, uh, and I'm like, ah, ah, this is the story that I need to tell right now. Um, and it doesn't, it, it's not, it's not every thing in history that is interesting. It's, it's really the way they intersect with the, the contemporary stuff, if that makes any sense at all. Also the clothes. I will also say that I am a sucker for good clothes. Uh, and sometimes that will influence me. Uh, in my choices. What, what's an example of a garment that's uh, appealed to you and, and that you've worked into your books? 
Um, so all of, I mean, it, literally the reason that I write the Regencies, because I, I, I genuinely like the clothes. I worked on something that was set in um, 1907, and that was when I really discovered that part of what attracts me to a particular era is uh, my desire for the clothing, because I did not, it turns out, like the clothing from the 1907s, um, from the, the aughts, I should say. Um, the uh, the other thing, let's see, anything specific? Um uh, in The Relentless Moon, I gave my main character a taffeta ball gown in um, that's uh, peacock in, in color, um, specifically as an excuse to buy such a gown myself. What was your first exposure to the history of space exploration? Well, I was born in 1969, and um, my parents are very proud of the fact that I sat up on my own to watch the moon landing. So there's not a point in my life where I haven't had the moon and space as part of my own personal narrative. Um, the moment that I can remember really paying attention, uh, the two would be the, uh, the first shuttle launch um, and then when Sally Ride went up. Those are the two moments that I remember paying attention to it for myself instead of part of just kind of the world that I existed in. And it's kind of cool when you think about it, the fact that how many people alive today have only lived with people going into space. Like they, there's hasn't been a point when we have not had people leaving the planet. Yeah. I know when I was born shortly thereafter, I, my life encompasses certainly the space race, but also the Challenger explosion. I, I don't specifically remember mm -hmm. that, but I remember yeah. it being a thing. I was in high school uh, when we lost the Challenger, and I was an office assistant, so I was in the office and heard it and saw it because we had they were you know doing the thing where it was they were showing it to all the classrooms. But I had to go into the assistant principal's office and say something has just happened. What what was that like? I still remember the um, the the sense of shock. Um, and one of the things that I remember really clearly is the way her face changed. Um, I don't think I had seen an adult do that thing where, like, she had the moment of, oh, dear God, this is terrible. And then immediately had the, there is a student here and I have to be responsible. Um, and, and like, keep putting that, that armor very, very visibly back on. And, and I think that's the first time I saw that and realized that it was a thing that, that grown-ups had to do. Now, how did this all dovetail with your interest in science fiction? Again, there's not a point in my life when I don't remember reading science fiction. Um, my dad and I would, actually the whole family, but dad and I particularly, would listen to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when it was on the radio. Uh, you know, we watched Star Trek, we watched Battlestar Galactica. Um, I read all of the things. Um, but it is... For me, again, the, the thing that I said at the beginning about the way science fiction and fantasy for me allows us to ask big questions. Connie Willis said a thing um, once which I, made me go, oh, yes, that's why I like it so much. She said that she thinks that the difference between science fiction and fantasy and mimetic fiction or everyday fiction is that in mimetic fiction, you have ordinary problems 
but then your character has to have an outsized or, or an extraordinary response to an ordinary problem. Like someone's husband is cheating on them. It's not just... Uh, you know, they, they go stay with a family member. They, they go to the PTA and they stand on the table and they shout and, and confront the person that he was having an affair with in, in order to, to drive the plot, that you have to have this extraordinary reaction to, to cause the plot to move forward. Whereas in science fiction and fantasy, we have extraordinary events taking place, which allows people to have normal proportionate responses. And that made me understand part of why I like science fiction and fantasy. But it also made me realize that it, it gives us an opportunity to be much more faithful uh, representation, to present much more faithful representations of of honest human emotion. Uh, you know, the, the things that happen to us in our real world uh, can be as as rocking or earth shattering as uh, you know as a meteor hitting. Um, there there can be things that are as deeply traumatic, but most of those things aren't enough to drive a plot. And so, and that's like I feel like that's um, doing a disservice to people who who write. Uh, mimetic naturalistic fiction, because I, I certainly have read stuff where people are having um, completely normal responses to completely normal events. But, uh, but you know, in a in a broad stroke, uh, in speaking very general terms, it it is an opportunity that science fiction offers. Now, I want to jump over to your original lady astronaut story, which you came up with in two thousand twelve. Um, how, how did you originally come up with? The story. I know it was part of an audio originals anthology. Like, what was the initial impulse for creating Elma York? Um. So I have a couple of different ways that I will wind up writing. Sometimes I have the idea and I will carefully craft a structure for it and then proceed. Uh, and sometimes I free write and then figure out what the structure is. This is one of the ones that I free wrote initially. Um, so I knew that I had to start with this opening line. Um, I had this punch card punk universe that I had come up with and quite liked for another short story called We Interrupt This Broadcast. And and I thought, well, what what else is happening? You know, what what does that the future of that story look like? What else? Uh, what else can I do in this this kind of universe? And um, knew that I wanted it to be first person because it was an audio. And I think first person tends to play better. So I just started writing. And one of the challenges with uh, having decided that I was going to start with a famous first line and wanting to do Wizard of Oz is that the first Wizard of Oz is in third person. So, um, which meant that my main character couldn't be Dorothy or Aunt Em or Uncle Henry, since those are all mentioned in third person in the, the first paragraph or in that first sentence. And and it gave me the uh, so it's uh, Dorothy lived in the Great Kansas Prairie with her uncle Henry who was a farmer and her aunt Em who was a farmer's wife. She says she met me. I am paraphrasing my own work. And 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 that gave me the line. Um, I have no memory of that. And it it was something that I was thinking about a fair bit at the time about the process of aging. Uh, my grandmother who lived to be one hundred and nine was I think one hundred and five. 106 at that point, but she just had a uh, a health thing. She'd had to go in for surgery and come, came back out. And I w had stayed with her for a while to um, to to help with some of the the care. And 
and I feel okay telling this now since she she has passed. But the um, there's a scene in the Lady Astronaut in which Nathaniel does not make it to the bathroom. Uh, he's he's quite sick and he doesn't make it. And and I was there with Grandma uh, the first time she had that happen where she couldn't make it. And and it it made me start thinking about these choices that we make as we're aging. Um, and so I was thinking about that. And then I was also thinking about the you know the the nature of being in a, a a long distance relationship which would happen for my husband and I several times a year uh the first several years that we were married I was working in New York we lived in Oregon and so I'd be gone 3 to 5 months out of the year so all of these things uh were kind of swirling around in my head uh when I started writing um and then probably got a third of the way in. And then I was like, okay, but wait, what is this story actually about? And figured out what the actual plot was. That story obviously went on to, with some controversy, earn a Hugo. And then was you <laughs> later published it uh, on Tor.com. And what about it prompted you to return to the world with a, a much longer novel? I had written several short stories in that universe, actually. Um, I think it's interesting that the idea of what we were able to do during the Apollo era. Um, someone, I wish I could remember who this was, someone in the space program said that they felt like uh, they had reached forward into the 21st century and brought a slice back to the 1960s. Because the thing that happened with rocketry, the advances that we made, when you think about the fact that we flew, like flight happened for the first time 50 years before that. And the fact that we then sent people to the moon, that's that's an amazingly fast development process from can we get people off the ground at all to, hey, why don't we go around that other uh, orbital body there? We can we can just do that. And I, I was like, what what would it have been like if we had kept going at that pace? You know, where would we where would we be now? Uh, like, what would society look like if the library in Alexandria hadn't burned down? These are interesting questions to me that I'm just like, eh, thought experiment. So the the process of going, hey, I'm, I'm going to write a novel about this was partly because I was aware of how many other stories it was possible to tell in this universe. And partly was honestly the completely commercial crass thing of my editor came to me and said, Hey, you want a Hugo for that? Do you want to? Do you think there's a novel in that universe? I'm like, why? Why? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> One of the interesting things I've, I've found while reading this story is just that there's not a lot of science fiction about like Apollo era hardware. Obviously, science fiction was really coming to fruition throughout the Apollo era and the space race. But a lot of that was in the distant future, far future. There are books out there about the Apollo mission or alternate Paul missions, but it, there's not much there compared to the rest of the, the science fiction canon. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Uh, good question. I think some of it may simply be that for a lot of the, you know, that, that it's not science fiction, especially for people who were writing during the period of which we think of, you know, as, as, uh, you know, the, the golden age, um, uh, but but it, it's it's not science fiction, you know. It's it's just science. It's just it's just fiction when you write about stuff that happens in that period. So I think it's that we're just now getting to a point where it is far enough in the past that it's historical fiction, um, which makes my mom die a little bit inside every time I say that the 1960s is historical period. But there are other people like Timmy O. Uh, is a 
novel, uh, Do You Dream of Terra 2, is an alternate history that looks at kind of what would have happened if we had, had gone to space earlier. I mean, you're right. It doesn't have a, a lot, but there's there are definitely other people who are playing with it. In, in preparation for the series, uh, I remember that you were conducting a lot of research into NASA's history and the technical procedures. Um, you visited several NASA sites. So much of science fiction or so much of writing is just authors using their imagination to come up with the parts and places of their worlds. How did you, how did putting your hands on things or seeing them up close help you imagine the world that you created for this series? So I want to be clear that I, um, I think I could have written the series without having done this, but what it gives me is the minutia. It gives me the small sensory details and, and it gives me the in-between spaces. So one of the things that happens when you research is people take pictures of the main rooms. They take pictures of the front of things. They don't take pictures of the passages in between rooms. They don't take pictures of the steps in between things. And, and they also don't take pictures or, or write down or document things that are just normal and part of their, you know, they, they don't think about it. Like if I am walking into a room, I'll say I turned on the light, but I don't describe reaching over and moving a plastic toggle into the upright position because everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say I turn on the light. So when you're reading something that was, when you're reading a biography or an autobiography, a lot of times what I found was that the the astronauts would have been doing this so much that they forgot what normal looked like to someone else. And the, the clearest example that I can give of this, this forgetting, is um, I was talking to Chell Lindgren when he invited me down to the Neutral Buoyancy Lab to watch them practice a spacewalk. Do you want to come to the NBL to watch a full dev run? And the answer is yes, I do. And then he said, but you probably won't want to stay all day because it'll be really boring. And I'm like, so you know how I'm a professional puppeteer. If you ever want to go to New York and see Sesame Street, let me know and I can hook you up, but you probably won't want to stay all day because it'll be really boring. And he laughed and acknowledged that I had a point. Um, but he, like, they they still have the sense of wonder about the job and the joy and all of that. But when you hang out with a bunch of other astronauts, you forget the parts of it that are cool to other people. So going to places lets me see all of those those things. There's a, a scene again in Relentless Moon where uh, they are in the room where they do spacesuit maintenance. I only know about that room and like I, I know it existed, but the, I only know what that room looks like and the sound of the fans and the giant table with women sitting around hand sewing things because I was there because it's not part of the front. No one takes pictures of it. What was what was one of the most surprising things that you learned over the course of this research? And, and I guess, how did that translate? Like, was, was there anything that interesting that you then realized, I have to throw this in somewhere? The disinfectant that they use. So when you poop on the uh, on the Apollo missions, you were going into a fecal containment bag, which was literally a plastic bag that you taped to your rump. And then you would have to put in a disinfectant and knead it in order to uh, to stop bacterial growth and, and all of that. And it was bright blue. And if you put in too much, then you had a bag of blue poop. And did, did that make it into the books? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, you asked me for something that made it into the book. That, I was like, I have, you have to, to find a place in. for that because that is ridiculous. <laughs> 
also uh, that you should never eat a milk dud that you see floating on the space station. I have heard that. Also, yes. Also made that in there. Yeah. Yes. I imagine treat anything that is floating with some amount of suspicion. Yes. Yes. Um, earlier this year, I, I remember seeing on Twitter, you got to try on a replica spacesuit from um, Adam Savage, who, yeah. who had gotten it from uh, Ryan Nagata. What was that experience mm-hmm. like? I remember seeing a couple pictures. Um, <laughs> that was amazing. Uh, so Adam and I were at a, a conference and he's he was doing a demonstration. It's like, this is my spacesuit. And um, there were uh, two astronauts in the room and they were like, oh, this is a really high fidelity replica. This is really good. And, like, and, I, and I'm in the middle of writing Relentless Moon at that point. And... And so I'm, I'm asking, you know, like, so what, what, you know, what does it feel like? And, and, uh, Adam just asks the room, does anyone else want to try it on? And my hand was up so fast. Uh, it was like it had been born already in the air. So, um, he let me try it on. It's really, really warm, uh, which I knew, like, that's why they have a liquid cooling and ventilation garment. But it's like, wow, this is really warm. And this is not even like the 21 layers that the actual Apollo suit was. It was r- neat seeing uh, what the, um, how reduced your sense of touch was, the the movement, uh, and also the the sound. I'd gotten to try on a um, uh, an actual space helmet, uh, one of the, the shuttle era ones, I mean, it's for the NBL. It's not rated for space, but it's it is um, rated for the NBL. So I got to try one of those on and right after having tried on a uh, helmet for a T thirty eight. And the thing that struck me with all three of them was the uh, the way the sound changes. So with a T thirty eight, it's like a motorcycle helmet, and it's trying to protect you from the roar of the jet. So the sound is everything is very very muffled. But they they don't have to worry about that with a spacesuit because you're in a vacuum. So you just get the sound of your voice reflecting off of the inside. And the um, the NBL helmet I tried on, that was just the helmet going over my head. But having this on, even though it didn't quite seal, because the, he's he's getting a seal that will actually latch. This, this one was, I think, just a magnetic one. But just having that and being in there and, and realizing how dampened, uh, everyone else's voices were and and how much my own reflected back and that you have to project in order to be heard outside of it. But it also feels like you're talking too loud because your own voice is being bounced back at you. That was very cool. I have a little bit of experience with this sort of thing. Um, I'm a fan of the Expanse TV series. And while doing some research mm. into it, I found that one of the spacesuit helmets that they use in the show is actually a uh, surplus Chinese army. It's a, it's called a G GK 80 helmet. And it, it's a, oh, cool. it's, it, it, it's basically a high altitude fighter jet helmet. And it looks like a space, it looks like a space helmet. And the funny thing is you could go on eBay and buy one um, for about $200. Wow. So I, I bought one and it arrived. And it, it, what I found really interesting was just how you, you sort of expect, I guess you sort of expect like a spacesuit helmet or like a, a fighter jet helmet to be like this really sort of durable like thing. And it, it's it's held on with like, you know, metal clasps and feeling it in, in person, it gives a sort of fidelity huh. to what this yeah. is like. And it sort of, in some ways, it takes away some of the, a little bit of the magic, like, oh, this, this is it. But also it's like, oh, this is a, a real thing. Mm-hmm. I got to uh, 
so the Adam is uh, the nicest person. I asked him if if he could recommend a pattern for a Snoopy cap because I, I wanted to make one and or rather I wanted one and I couldn't find one for purchase that I thought was good enough for my personal taste. Um, and I like making things. So I asked if he had one and he if he knew a good pattern and he just sent me his to make a pattern from. It's one that Ryan Nagata made. And, you know, you're making the, you're, you're working on it and you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is actually just a zipper. This is just, just a zipper. That's, that's, that's all this is. This is not a fancy thing. This is not. And, and then I have to remind myself, yes, but at the time zippers were still actually fairly high tech. Like they, they, you know, that, that whole, the evolution of the zipper in and of itself is an interesting process. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah. I, t- I take zippers for granted, but the, this is technology. I wanted to shift course over to The Relentless Moon a little bit. And the thing that struck me as I started reading it la- uh, earlier this month was the IAAC and your characters are facing widespread riots and mm-hmm. as people angry with the space program and upset about just the state of the world. Has the this year's series of protests over the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmad Aubrey prompted you to look back on those scenes any differently? Uh, n- no. Um, no, because sadly, this is us just repeating a thing. All of those riots, all of those headlines about the riots uh, and, and the riots themselves are all modeled on riots that were happening in the 1960s. Uh, over over civil rights, like th- this is path that we have been on, and uh, and you know we we make progress, and then we we s- uh, get complacent, and and then there's a lot of areas where we don't make progress. You know the the fact is that the the earnings gap between black men and white men is the same as it was in the 1950s, uh, and part of that. It's like on paper, it looks great. It looks like, oh yeah, no, we're making good progress. It's it's it, they're they're being paid the same, except that uh, they're also being incarcerated at greater rates now and being removed from the workforce in other ways, um, just not getting jobs. Uh, so it's it, the the earning gap is actually the same. So things like that, you know, the working on the novel gave me more perspective about what was happening now rather than the other way around because i had read so much about the social trauma and upheaval that was happening then like as soon as the riots started happening i was like oh yeah no this is a thing that has to happen and it's going to get worse and it it is you know i am i am hoping that uh, that change will actually happen this time but also the thing that causes change is cooperation between the people and the power. And we don't have that in this scenario. We have someone who is absolutely unwilling to compromise, who is unwilling to listen, who is unwilling to admit fault, setting the tone for all conversations. The fact that change happened last time, things got this bad, this heated, I should say, is was directly related to who was, uh, who was in the White House. Um, setting the tone for then what happened in Congress. And and also, frankly, terrifyingly and sadly, people dying. And that's horrifying that it takes that for us to pay attention. One of the things that we, you know, we've spoken about before with the Calculating Stars and Faded Sky is that there was a sense of you know, climate change was sort of at, at the forefront of the book in that this asteroid lands 
and it sets mm-hmm. off a, a runaway greenhouse effect and that there are people who are sort of questioning its veracity and like, well, this can't happen now because look, you know, it, it's, it's snowing. What do you mean global warming is a thing? In this book, it feels like a lot right. of those attitudes have hardened in much the same way that you see attitudes hardening right now around just just look at the news and take your pick of whatever subject people will willingly believe or or will just blindly believe misinformation or disinformation, particularly right, right now with like wearing a mask out in public. And there's this should not be a controversial thing, but there's so much mis and disinformation that people will just sort of settle into their ideological corners. How did you work this into the narrative in this book and, and potentially, you know, going further? So in the first book, I had President Brannon, who was the Secretary of Agriculture and a Quaker and uh, had been a farmer, you know, came came from farming stock, but was very much a uh, pacifist and and, uh, cooperation oriented president. And what happens again, the pattern that we see is that when you have someone you know, that, that very often people will go for the opposite of whoever was in power if they are unhappy. And so, uh, so in the Faded Sky and Relentless Moon, we have President Dinley, who is a hawk, and he's very much an America first person. And so a lot of the things that are happening and the discord that's going on is because I, I deliberately made a choice to put a president in power who would make things worse. I'm going to sure. do a historical example of, of the, the, the difference that a leader can make even when they're on the wrong side of history. And uh, that is Robert E. Lee, who has a lot to answer for, but he did one thing right. And that is that at the end of the Civil War, he went around and just said over and over again, lay down your arms, lay down your arms, lay down your arms. We have lost this, lay down your arms. This, This conflict is over, lay down your arms. And if he had not done that, if he had instead said, we will never surrender, if he had, he he modeled what people needed to do. And that is, otherwise, I think that we would have had a, a guerrilla warfare going on for decades after the end of the, the Civil War. And as I say, he has a lot to answer for. He's on the wrong side of history, but that is one thing that he did right. And and it is something that that people do. Like we have a thing when we are in crisis that we that, that we want to help, but then we also look for someone to model for us what helping looks like, what action we should be taking. And that's that's why you know we talk about role models. But that is one of the reasons that who is in the White House is so important because they wind up setting the tone for the nation. Given that we're sort of going through a massive world impacting event, actually, actually, I can't think of any event in modern time that has really sort of morbidly united the entire globe, at least with a shared experience. But what what do you hope that readers will take away from The Relentless Moon uh, or any of the books in a a post-COVID world? Not to suggest that COVID-19 is on any way similar to an asteroid strike, but it seems like they're shared experiences to some extent. That we survive things better when we weather it together. The thing that I have consistently tried to model with these books is, I, I, you know, I, I want to acknowledge that there are people who will be unhappy and and fight and be selfish. Uh, so I include them, but I also want to model what it looks like when you make a different choice, when you make the more inclusive, kinder choice, when you are generous, because I don't think we see that often enough. And and I think that it is part of human nature, and it is not a part that we honor in fiction enough. It feels like in a in a 
a big way that if there's any sort of through line for it, this entire series, it's that inclusion and, and empathy are big things, which, which is kind of interesting because it runs counter to the broader history of space travel. Um, NASA has been highly selective when it comes to sending people to space and, and yeah. <laughs> even to the point where you have seen i've seen people speak about you know space exploration and space travel is almost like a genocidal thing because you will weed out people who are quote-unquote undesirable for that project yeah um yeah the way the space program is structured currently and i, I talk about it in the book it's um it's a giant eugenics program uh, unintentionally but, you know, there's a lot of unintentional choices that we can make that are uh, very bad. And uh, and I, I like to see people making choices intentionally. You know, the, the world is full of unexamined bias um, and choices that people make that are not coming from a bad place and they're not a bad person, but it still has a bad effect. Using an example from puppetry, Jim Henson, who did a lot for making the art of puppetry a mainstream thing in, in modern America, uh, was six foot four. So the sets were built around making, you know, he, he built sets that he was comfortable in. And when he needed to add additional performers, he, you know, looked at who was working, who, you know, who did well in the audition. And strangely, those people were also all in the six four range because they did well in the audition because they fit the set that he had built for himself. And then when they go to bring new people in, it's like, well, all of these puppeteers, none of these puppeteers are having problems. You're having a problem. It must just be you not paying attention to the fact that, you know, all these puppeteers are between six feet and six foot four. And then what happens is that when you look at it and you go, oh, you know what? We really need to get more women in here. And they have trouble because six four is a really unusual height for a woman. So most female puppeteers have to perform in uh, clogs uh, of some sort. I have a friend who has uh, who has shoes that make her uh, ten inches taller, and so and and then then you're having to you know that that adds this extra layer of difficulty to your performance, and and it's not an intentional choice. You know, none of this was oh, we need to exclude women. But it also then winds up having, and it's not just women, it's like anyone who's short and they're, you know, it's just that women are proportionately tend to be shorter than men. So it's a choice that winds up having this disproportionate effect on a particular population. And space is doing the same thing. I I get real mad about SpaceX um, for, I mean, there's a number of things, but one of the things that I get real mad at is uh, they they say that they are thinking about making the program accessible to everyone. And, and in fact, they are thinking about a wide range of heights. And I believe that, you know, they've made the seats a, as adjustable as possible, but they are still optimizing for two male astronauts. Um, and even if they're thinking about other things, when you're looking at, okay, we need to, uh, we've done some testing, we need to make a choice between A or B. And if the two guys who are going to get on the, the giant bomb first are in your A camp, uh, you're going to give them more weight, whether you want to or not, whether you're not going to, it's not going to be a conscious thing. It's just you're going to unconsciously give them more weight because they're the ones who are going to immediately have to deal with it. I remember uh, last year for the 50th anniversary of Apollo, you had written about the systemic things in the Apollo program and even that have persisted now to today. 
where women are essentially excluded because of the size that they are. Um, and what comes to mind right away is the, is the spacesuit thing from a, um, mm-hmm. the all, the all female, um, spacewalk. And it was scrubbed because they didn't have the right spacesuits on hand. Yeah. Now I do want to say that NASA is aware of this. The biggest problem that they have, the reason we're using spacesuits that are 40 years old is because of funding. You know, I I know that if they could, that I know that they have done development on other things, and if they could build additional things, they would. But there's a reason that there are only, let's see, I think we're down to eleven of these now, and only four of them are rated for spaceflight. You know, they, they don't have the money, uh, and money keeps getting reallocated to different things. Um, the suits that they're building for the Artemis uh, that they've designed for that, the choice that they're making there is quite different. The spacesuit designers are women. And they are, what they've realized is that it's much easier to design for the smallest person and then size up from there. So they're designing the suits for small women. How are you going planning on incorporating all of this into the future of, of Lady Astronauts as, as you move forward? Because I know you have another book in the works. If I recall correctly from another interview that we conducted, you have a novella in the works. Um, I guess, what do, you, what do you have planned moving forward and, and how are these issues going to continue to surface? Right. So the novella, which at some point I will write, I have uh, not had a chance to write it yet, uh, is, is something that takes place when the meteor strikes. So the Martian Contingency, which is the book after The Relentless Moon, is, is being on Mars all the time. And what that is looking at is, there's, I mean, there's a, a bunch of fun space things, but the, the thing that I'm noodling with in my head is, what does it look like to make a society without importing some of the more harmful parts of society from Earth. One of the things that I know going in is that there's a character, a number of characters who who say basically, um, yeah, can we not call this a colony or a settlement? Because those words both carry a lot of damaging history. Connotations to them. Yeah. And and then conversations about about language and what language do we speak and what languages are we going to lose that that kind of thing um, are the you know some of the things that I'm thinking about with uh, with the next with, with book four. Do you have plans to continue it beyond that, or do you have a a, a definite end point in mind? I am not so. It's interesting. Um, the uh, Lady Astro, like the uh, Calculating Stars and Faded Sky, were for me solidly a duology. Those books are meant to be read together. Um, I'm trying to do all of the other ones as standalones. You know, you you definitely get history if you go back and read the others. But but I could see myself writing a bajillion different standalones in this world. Um, I don't have a long arc for it, probably in part because. I have the Lady Astronaut of Mars novella is set in the future. So I don't have a, oh, we're going to do these things and then, yay, everything will be fine. It's like, well, no, it actually will keep going. And and actually, Lady Astronaut of Mars, you know, I, I, I have an idea of what, you know, that that novel in, has, uh, has this embedded mission in it to go to an extrasolar planet. And I have in my head, like, what, what that 
what that would be. You know, like if I wrote a book or a short story about that, it's like, so there's a lot of stories in there. I'll, I'll keep writing them as long as they're interesting to me. And um, as long as my editor uh, continues to want them, but, but it's not, it's not a universe that I think about in terms of an arc. Whereas the glamorous histories, I did think of that in terms of that it was a five book arc. Like I, I fatigue after five sequential books sure. as a reader. Um, I have two other arcs that I want to do within that, you know, with those characters. But but the Lady Astronaut universe, I think because it started with short fiction that was kind of all over the place, feels like a different playground. Yeah, and short fiction allows you to tell stories that are not that don't necessarily slot into a novel category. You can tell smaller stories or really big stories. Yeah. I, yeah. I've got a um we're we're working on an anthology that uh, that we're we're gonna pitch, and I say anthology and not collection because my intention with that is to have some other authors write stories within the Lady, uh, Lady Astronaut universe, um, so that we have some own voices, stories uh, for characters that I don't feel like I can write. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I'm very excited about the people who have said yes so far. I just need to uh, I have to write the novella so that we can pitch it. Um, and I just haven't had time to do that yet. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you.